what I was trained for in college, was to become a counselor. A lot of interest in that. And so I read several books, and um, one of the, the great leaders of the psychoanalytical movement, Carl Menninger, he wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. Now, I must confess, I only read part of it and stopped. But I liked the title. Whatever Became of Sin. It speaks to a movement away from morality in this modern world in which we live. As though morality has become antiquated and irrelevant, even though the foundation of morality lies in the eternal creator. It is nothing new for humanity to diminish and excuse sin. It began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve allowed themselves to be tempted. And thousands of years later, we are still rationalizing and excusing and dismissing sin. Yet it is our greatest problem. Today, we're kicking off a new series from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. It is true that when he spoke to the people of Judah, sin was also diminished. It was ignored. It was rationalized away. It was excused. It was even rejected by them. They were seriously sick with sin. In Isaiah... Isaiah would bring to them both a word of judgment and a word of hope from the God who loves. The relevance to us is pretty significant. For the Old Testament of God received the favor of God. And we the church, are also the recipients of God's favor. We receive his favor not because we are special, nor because we have earned it. It is favor extended to all people by the Lord. It is his forgiveness for our sins that comes by grace through faith in the Messiah Jesus. And with it, the assurance of eternal life and the power of the Holy Spirit to assist us in living holy lives. In many ways, the favor that we have received is even greater than the favor of God's people from the Old Testament. The question that we should be asking ourselves throughout this series is this, are we in danger of, or have we fallen into the same trap that the people Isaiah was speaking to have done? Not taking sin seriously. Worshiping God 
but not being sanctified. Thinking that somehow <clears throat> acting like we are religious is enough. Well, the big idea today is just simply this. We, that is you and I, we have a choice to make. Are we going to be willing and obedient to God, or are we going to resist and rebel against God? That is a decision. Not only as individuals that we make, but as a church, a decision we make as a corporate body as well. Now, Isaiah's prophetic ministry covered the span of four Judean monarchies. Can we get the timeline up here? Those monarchies were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And we're told this in verse 1 of Isaiah, chapter 1. And we learn in chapter 6 of Isaiah that it actually begins for Isaiah the prophet in the last year of King Uzziah's reign. The Talmud tells us that it is Hezekiah's son, the last king mentioned by Isaiah. His son, Manasseh, who is a wicked king, who puts Isaiah to death. And he has Isaiah sawed in half. Isaiah's ministry will last more than 50 years. Now you will recall that the monarchy over the people of God split into two kingdoms after Rehoboam succeeded his father Solomon. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And under King Uzziah, they have reached the pinnacle of their greatest power and prominence over the 200 years of their existence in this divided kingdom. The northern kingdom is doing well also, but it will come to an end soon in the lifetime of Isaiah, 722 B.C., when they will be conquered by the new big kid on the block in the Middle East, the Assyrians. Isaiah will live to witness this. The Assyrians will continue their march southward. And they will attempt to conquer Judah and Jerusalem. And they will lay siege on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be in great peril. But God will intervene. And it is said that the evening before the Assyrians were to attack Jerusalem, 185,000 were struck down by an angel of the Lord. Most likely some kind of plague. And the Assyrian king and his men returned home, never to come back again. God spared Judah. But a hundred years later, a new big kid on the block, the Babylonians, would come and conquer Judah. And they would take a very small remnant 
into exile. And they would return to the promised land 70 years later. And Isaiah foretold all of this in his vision. Now the first five chapters of Isaiah is actually a prologue and an overview to all the rest of the chapters. When Isaiah wrote it, we don't know. But we know that God wanted it to begin his word. And so it sits at the front of this prophetic book in the Old Testament. And in chapter 1 today, we will discover in this overview that God will remind his people of his covenant with them. And while he will describe this vision as concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the judgment of God that will be included in Isaiah will stretch out far wider. And so will the promises of hope from the God who loves. And we'll see that as we study through Isaiah. Now an outline of chapter 1 might look like this. God will call Judah to account as though this were a courtroom. And he will accuse them of rebellion. He will tell them that they have two choices from which to choose. And then he will tell them what judgment will mean. Let's begin with the rebellion. Open up your Bibles, if you haven't, to Isaiah chapter 1. Now, we're only going to read out loud verses 10 through 20. But you'll find it helpful to go back and forth as I'm talking to you. You'll see references to it as well. It is in these first nine verses that God brings charges against Judah. He calls heaven and earth to be witness against them. It is the same heaven and earth that God called to be witness when he established the covenant with his people before they entered the promised land. He has convened court again. And the charges that he brings is that the people have lost their way. They have been seduced by the success that they have, by the expansion of their influence and their power. But they are imploding from sin. God lays out the charges. They have failed to keep their commitment to the covenant. God says, even the simple-minded animals, the ox and the donkey, know their owners and respond to them. They know who's feeding them. They know when to come to the trough. They know who's caring for them. But not God's people. They have rejected the blessing of God. They have rejected His holy calling. They have rejected his claim upon them. God describes them as rebellious, 
a sinful nation, filled with iniquity, evildoers, corrupt, forsaking the Lord, despising his graciousness and estranged from God. It is incomprehensible. And there will be more to say in the last third of this chapter when God speaks of judgment. God gives evidence of their wickedness. Yes, they are experiencing the height of their material power and prosperity and influence. But the evidence of their wickedness is in the spiritual realm. They're in a desperate spiritual state. They are seriously sick with sin, despicable and disgusting. And they are unaware of how serious all this is. God refers to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. Two cities that God destroyed because their sins were so despicable. But God says they are not Sodom and Gomorrah. God will not destroy them. He will leave a remnant unlike Sodom and Gomorrah. It must have been shocking for the king to hear this and for the people to hear this. But history will prove Isaiah's vision is right and true. What I want us to consider about this is this. We, the church, the redeemed of God, blessed with his favor, ought to take our sins very seriously as well. And I've thought long and hard all week about the serious nature of sin. I met with the men on Saturday morning and been working through some things with them. And one of the things that we've started to work on together as men is to look at the darkness that lives within us, that affects us. Sin. So I've been looking at sin quite heavily in this past week or two. And as I've considered it, it's shocking to me at how much I don't want to see it. I can look at the list of things, murder, maybe I kill a bug every now and then. Threaten to take my dog out when he's not being obedient. But other than that, yeah, no, not me. Of course, Jesus said if you do it in your heart, you've done it, right? Envy? I'm old. Maybe I can envy the young, but I don't want to go through that again, so I'm not. I can go down a whole laundry list, but... For me, what I've found is that sin is much more subtle. As I studied for the men's connection Saturday morning, I was studying from Aquinas. And he was one of those contemplatives who looked not at the vices, but at the virtues. 
And as he looked at the virtues that come with the sanctified life, he would see the vices. And I was studying about pride. We all know what pride is, right? Preeminence of self. I'm the most important. And I want to be preeminent. And of course, the contemplatives thought this was the sin of Satan. He wanted to take the place of God. But there is another side to pride. Another face to the two-sided coin. And he talked about pusillanimity, which means smallness of soul. And how, while some people want to be preeminent, other people think they have no value or no worth. And he said, this, this is the working of pride in the opposite direction. And here's the sin of that smallness of soul. That I am focused on me and do not believe that God can fill me and use me because I am consumed with myself. And you know, with my counseling background, I thought, I've never really taken that seriously. And I've never really seen this smallness of soul that comes to me from time to time as sin, as hanging on to it rather than allowing God to fill me in it. There are subtleties of sin that function in our life in just this way. But here's the thing that I want to share with you. Hopefully you're thinking about, where's the subtlety of sin in my own life? Let me give you one more. I seldom think that my sins hurt God. I just don't think about it like that. I think about sin as a religious kind of thing. After all, God can handle it. But then again, when my daughters hurt me, they probably think it's just the thing young people do. They don't think it hurts me. But it does. And as I thought about my sin in relationship to God and realized that it actually hurts Him, what I think about is that my life is meant to be a journey with God. This is a relationship. This is a covenant with God through what He did on the cross. And I've told you many times, God has never forsaken me, which has always deeply moved me. He has kept every one of his promises. Do you ever think that your sin actually hurts God? Do you recognize that you're on a personal journey walking with him? I wonder if Judah would have kept that in perspective 
if the nation might not have been different in being consumed with themselves and their own preeminence. Whatever happened to sin and the serious understanding of it? Have we become so accustomed to it that we are in danger of being like Judah? That we should consider. Well, the text moves on. God speaks about two choices. Let's read that together. If you don't have a Bible, you can look up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God reminds his people that there are two choices in this covenant, the covenant which they ratified with him. Choice one is the right way. It is the way of God that he sets forth in his word and in his teaching. Inherent within these words to hear the word of God and listen to the teaching of God, inherent within that is the meaning of obedience that is attached with our hearing and with our giving ear. Obedience is the right way. Submission is the right way. The second choice is the wrong way. It is the way of self-determination. It is the way of Adam and Eve. It is the way of listening to our fallen nature. It is the way that leads to sin. Isaiah, he would write about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, this. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. 
God goes on to describe his disgust for their sins in reaction to worship. God rejects the pretense of their solemn worship, but their casual attitude towards sin. God says, enough of burnt offerings. Stop your vain worship. No more. I'll hide my eyes from you. I will not listen to your prayers. Your sacrifices are meaningless without real repentance of sin. There will be no forgiveness. God says, if you think you're worshiping me the right way, you are wrong because your worship is wrong. God wants and expects that his relationship with us will bring about real ethical transformation and lead us away from sin. This is why God says, I want you to learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. God says, because there is no transformation in you, no repentance of sin, I reject your worship. I wonder how God feels about our worship. We come on Sunday morning to make an offering and a sacrifice of praise, thinking that this is what pleases God. And it does. God is certainly worthy of it. But it seems to me that like others, we can become consumers of worship, shopping and desiring what pleases us rather than concerned about what pleases God. We want to be encouraged. We want to be renewed in our spirit. We want to hear the word of God and listen to his teaching. And this is good. But what do we offer God in our worship? Have you come here today to worship God's worthiness and recognize it? To love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and offer yourself to him? I do want to say this about our worship teams. I know that it is their heart to lead us in genuine worship. I feel it most Sundays. And when I don't feel it, I most often talk about it as we debrief the services as, you know, I might have been in a bad place inside of myself and missed it. Because God can meet us anywhere, anytime, with any speaker teaching his word. Because God is able. I am thankful for our worship team's genuine, heartfelt ministry. And I'm thankful that our congregation spent time 
over the last couple of years to really try to come to a greater understanding of worship. That it is about Him and not about us. And not about being consumers, but being producers. Because God is worthy. I'm glad that we took time today to come before God and express our sins and ask for forgiveness. And I'm glad that there was a heartfelt response to a new song this morning as people were just led by the Spirit to rise and worship I hope that we are all being transformed in the renewing of our minds so that we can go out and do the will of God when we leave here. The question is, if we want to really be worshipers of God, will we look to the Word of God and listen to His teaching, obey and do good? Will we seek justice? Will we correct oppression? Will we fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, will we help those who have a genuine need? Recently, the elders sent notice to this congregation about newly proposed legislation to expand this state's abortion laws to allow for abortion to take place anytime throughout a nine-month full-term pregnancy. We invited the congregation to go to the Illinois State website and weigh in. I don't know how many people weighed in. And I'm not going to judge you for that. But I can tell you that this bill passed through that committee lickety-split. And it's going to the State House for a vote sometime in the near future. And if it tweaked your conscience, then I hope you will answer that tweak. And not be silent. Talking about this is very uncomfortable. I'm sure for many of you it's uncomfortable for me. But the reality is we will never be transformed and we will never be fully sanctified unless we talk about the uncomfortable things. And unless we're honest about sin. Who will stand up for unborn children who have no voice if we do not? And if God is tweaking our conscience, then he's calling us to stand up. And make no mistake, he does not want you to stand up with vitriol like the rest of the world. Because when the world sees us stand, they need to see the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? We must handle ourselves in a manner becoming of our Lord, speaking truth with love and offering hope against it. And this is why our commitment to Caris, 
of ministry to women with unplanned pregnancies is so important. It's not enough to give voice. It's not enough to throw money at something. We must engage our hearts and our lives with people who need our help. And I wonder if God doesn't want some of us from this congregation to rise up and be involved with Karis and be involved with women who have the courage to say no to an unplanned pregnancy. I will not abort this child. God reminds his people and he reminds us today in the text to choose. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God promises that if they choose the right way, he will bless them. But if they choose the wrong way, then judgment will follow. And he speaks about that judgment in the next ten verses. God talks about this coming judgment. And as he does, he talks about the city of Jerusalem. He calls it the faithful city. Once it was right with God, full of justice and righteousness. But now the holy city has fallen into sin. She is nothing more than a whore who gives herself away to idols and false gods. And she has forsaken. The people of God have fallen far into sin. They have become murderers, thinking of themselves to the point that they could take the life of another without any concern. Sin has such a firm grip on them that it doesn't matter. But isn't that the nature of sin? The more we give ourselves over to it, the deeper it takes us and the further it keeps us and the more it costs us. God says the people have become consumed with sin. They are like dross, the useless scum of mineral deposits that are removed when silver is purified. They are like diluted wine, losing its sweet taste and value. Their leaders are rebels and thieves, ruled by greed and envy, and they think only of themselves. They do not protect, protect the vulnerable orphans and widows. So think about this. The people of God put themselves first above God and above everyone else. Sin was running away with them. What about you? They sought to better their position in life 
and make no real sacrifice for God, even though he gave them great favor. Can this be said of you? Sin had a firm grip upon them, and they allowed it. How about you? Do your choices and actions reflect God's agenda for your life? Or do you think it is enough to wave at God and invite Him to bless you and join you in your agenda? Because the people of God rejected the transformation of their minds and hearts and lives, God called them enemies and foes. He said they have forsaken him, they have rejected him, they have turned their back on him, they have walked away from him. They will be broken and consumed in judgment and shame. Even so, this holy God, who will judge, is also the God who loves. And he will leave a remnant of people to carry on his great redemptive plan. And he will restore that remnant to the promised land. And he will fulfill his plan. For remember, it is from the seed of a woman, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, a branch from the shoot of Jesse, a son of David, who will become the Messiah, who will be the suffering servant to give his life so that all may have life. And God will make sure that his purposes will win out. Here's the question for you and I to take seriously. I ask you to think about it during the week. Are you going to be willing and obedient to God, as the text asks? Or are you going to resist and rebel against God? To be willing and obedient to the Word of God and the teaching of God will surely cause us to take sin seriously, to repent of it, and to seek God's lordship and leadership in all that we think and all that we do. And I have an amen. Let's pray. Lord, in some ways, it is a hard message. In other ways, it is a hopeful message. I pray, Lord, that we will see this truth for ourselves. And that, Lord, while it may be hard for us, I pray that we will be filled with hope, knowing that you are not only a God who judges, but you are a God who is filled with love and wants to reach everyone 
He wants all to be included within your kingdom, though not all will. I pray, Lord, for your grace and mercy to abound. And thank you for your love through Jesus. In his name, amen. In Psalm 51, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. So let's come to God today. We're going to sing a song of confession to him. Let's stand and sing, sing the song together. Like the text.